This is episode 186. Today we learn about the research on reading instruction for MLs with the legendary Dr. Claude Gutenberg. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. When I entered fifth grade, I was exited out of the ESL program. I was supposed to have the same English skills as my more fluent peers. Yet I still remember picking up a book called The Cat That Went to Heaven and not being able to comprehend the words. I could decode most of them, but I still couldn't tell you who were the characters and where they were by the end of the first page. How could this happen to someone who have successfully exited out of the ESL class? Why didn't I develop the ability to comprehend what I was reading? That is our guiding question in this podcast. What does effective reading instruction for MLs look like? When thinking about experts in the field who could answer this question, Dr. Claude Godenberg comes to mind first. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited and honored to introduce to you on the podcast, the renowned Dr. Claude Goldenberg, all the way from Stanford University. Dr. Goldenberg, bienvenido al podcast. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much, Tan. I'm delighted to be here. And just a slight correction, I'm not at Stanford anymore. So I'm coming to you from Southern California, which at the moment is sunny, but Hurricane Hillary is bearing down on us. Oh, so let's get started. Uh, when I I've been listening to all of your podcasts and interviews on on Ed Webb and uh, Beth Skelton, my co-author, said Dr. Claude Goldenberg is the face of reading instruction for multilingual learners. And when Beth has said something, or when 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 Beth has introduced me to somebody, that means oh my goodness, this is an expert of experts. So I am pitching myself to thinking, oh my goodness, he's on the podcast. So Dr. Goldenberg, again, thank you for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. And thank you for the honor. Can you share a memorable teaching moment that has influenced your work? Yes, um, I can. Uh, there, are, there are many, as you might imagine, but this one might actually surprise you and your listeners. After I finished my PhD, I, I I wasn't interested in being a professor or an academic. I wanted to go back and teach first grade because I did my dissertation um, with uh, Spanish-speaking children in a bilingual program, learning to read in Spanish. And since, as you know, I'm bilingual, I could teach in Spanish, I could teach in English. I mean, I couldn't teach very well, but at least I knew the languages. So... Um, I, I I didn't want to post. I mean, well, my I want the, the only postdoc I wanted was to get into the into classrooms, into a, my own first grade classroom, and sort of deploy all the knowledge and skills that I gathered in five years in PhD school. So I had, and this was probably before you were born. This is back in 84, 85. and um. And it was it was the heyday of whole language, which we now call balanced literacy. 
especially here in California, it was. And I was, I mean, I was totally in. I mean, as you know, part of the problem or issue and challenge in education is it get it gets mixed up with, I don't know, philosophical and ideolo ideological issues. Now, there's a lot of, I don't mean ideology in a bad sense. I mean, ideology, you know, we all have ideologies, whether we recognize it or not. I mean, no one is ideology free, right? So I don't mean that in a disparaging sort of way. But a lot of instructional issues get caught up with sort of philosophical issues, very deep ideological issues having to do with our assumptions and how how people learn, how children learn, what kind of environments are, are ideal for them. You know, there's the Rousseauian perspective, right, which is very what you might call inside out, right? That's kind of associated also with, with Paolo Freire and, and progressive ideologies. And then we have the more transmissionist, you know, or outside in, which is associated with direct instruction and, and now associated with science of reading and so forth. So all these things have been swirling around for centuries, and it's played out in what's sometimes called the reading wars. And so the 1980s were like prime time during the reading wars, which had already been going on for another, a generation. It was whole language versus phonics and so forth. And I went to a you know, fairly progressive graduate school, you know, UCLA and literature-based or um, uh, whole language-based instruction was sort of part of the kind of general set of assumptions. So I went in with that perspective. So, um, and I and I was completely ignorant of really, it was before it was called science of reading, it was called something else. It was called scientifically based reading research or evidence-based reading, I mean, it's called different things. So I just assumed that, you know, that too much phonics was sort of bad for the soul, <laughs> you know, and bad for reading, it kills joy. And I mean, I had all those assumptions. And I thought that whole language is a very progressive, very liberal, very open-minded way of approaching teaching. And nothing in graduate school I came across dissuaded me from that. I mean, everyone basically, yeah, that's the way it goes. So I went into first grade teaching with that set of assumptions. So I was teaching, like I said, Spanish reading and English reading. And during the English reading portion of my day, I had a small group of English readers. One of them was this, this, this little black kid, an African-American kid. Um, I'm going to use a pseudonym because I don't want to blow anyone's cover. Let's call him Bob. Um, and Bob was a sweet, really nice little kid, you know, motivated, enthusiastic. But boy, he was having trouble getting traction in reading. You know, he just couldn't couldn't get it, or, or so I thought. And um, I, I, you know, I worked with him and I tried to do the three cueing and what makes sense and look at these letters. I mean, I did my version of whatever whole language was in my head. So one day, Bob is not in class. And I said, where's Bob? Because he was always there, very on top of things, always brought his homework, everything. Where's Bob? And someone said, teacher, I think I think he moved. And I thought, oh. So on the one hand, I was sorry because he was a really good kid. I really, really liked him. On the other hand, that was one difficult child I had that I just, and I thought, okay, whew, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I felt a little guilty, but okay, I'm being honest now. So about a month or so later, Bob shows up in my reading group again. Bob, man, what's happening? What's going on? What are you doing? I'm, he said something like, I'm back. I said, oh, well, where were you? He says, well, I was at another school. 
And I said, okay, how was it? He said, it was fine, you know. So I hand out the reading books. Bob opens it and he starts reading. I mean, like reading. Now, of course, this is a primer, pre-primer, you know, it's a first grade reader. So he's not reading War and Peace yet, but he's reading in a way that I guarantee you six weeks ago, he could not do. I thought, oh, <laughs> Bob, you're reading. That's really awesome. Um, where'd you learn? My teacher taught me. <laughs> oh, really? You know, a knife in the chest, right? My teacher taught me. I said, well, what, what did you do at your other school? He says, what did you do during reading? He says, well, I learned my letters and I learned my spelling words. Okay. <laughs> So I thought, mm, I'm missing the boat here somewhere. Now, that was one of several stories that I could tell you, which I won't because I know you want to get on to other things. But the point was that I realized then, and I was coming, to, I came to this realization. It took me a year or two, honestly, including a study I did testing my hypothesis that just did not work about early reading and whole language and so forth. It took me about two years to realize how wrong I was. And how I really had to redirect my thinking about teaching and learning kids to read. So that stands out. It just reminds us of every time um, I ask these questions, teachers often inevitably talk about their first years of teaching, right? And we always want to go back to our Bobs and our students in the first years and apologize to say, can I teach you again? Can I do everything over? I'm really sorry. And so um, we tried our best. And, and what we thought was correct. Right? And so, yes. but yet the research has now showed differently. Can you talk about, um, if you had the research that we have now, how would you instruct uh, Bob back then? Well, Tom, let me just clarify one thing. We had the research then that I was just not aware of. And, and this is a common theme, as, as I'm sure you know, as you've been following the new, new reading wars in the United States. I mean, there, there's a Facebook group called something like what I should have learned in teacher preparation or what I didn't learn in college, right? I mean, I, I am not unique in the sense that I realized while I was teaching, there's a whole lot more to teaching reading that I just wasn't aware of. And I mean, it's taken me a while to sort of catch up with the with the research, but with that opening that Bob and some of my colleagues helped me, helped me see I had to backfill because it wasn't like that knowledge was unknown then. It was unknown to me. But if but if I had known and and I and I did I did change gears. I mean, but it was a long, tortuous path. But to your quest to your question, I mean, I would take what is what see, one of the challenges we have was we use words in ways that mean different things. So right now, balanced literacy, balanced has a connotation that really means not not balance but random it's like a deep choose your own adventure right balanced literacy now means look at the picture think of the syntax maybe look at the first letter what would make sense there if you don't know the word skip it and maybe come back that is a total di distortion of the meaning of the word balance i mean balance in in the reading instruction context goes back at least to the National Reading Panel. I'm sure you know about that from 2000. And they talked about balance as a program. First of all, they said, 
no reading program can be solely phonics. That, that's just not enough, right? I mean, it was right there. No program should be completely dominated by phonics. You need a balanced program that does phonics, which is kind of a code word for foundational skills, right? You need foundational skills instruction, but then that's gotta be balanced with things that like read alouds and content knowledge, right? The things that, that was before Scarsborough's Rope, but it's like, you gotta do the word attack part of Scarsborough's Rope or Simple View, you know, choose your metaphor. You gotta do that part. And you got to do the language, meaning, comprehension, uh, background knowledge part, which until kids can read has got to be done orally. You know, when they're beginning to read, there's very little, if anything, they can learn from reading. There's some, but it's very limited. They can learn a lot more orally. And you need to tap into that in order to make sure that part of the simple view or the rope, whichever you like, is taken, you, you know, you don't wait until kids can decode everything before you start doing language comprehension and background knowledge. You do not wait. That's one of the ways that science of reading has been caricatured. It's all about phonics. It's all about word recognition. No, it's not. If you really know there's the science of reading or the reading research, you know there's more to it than that. So if I were to start again, I would have that model in mind. And I would know that we need those foundational skills, but at the same time, you need to work on the other things because eventually they're going to converge. The word attack and the comprehension and language, they're going to converge. And that's what makes, you know, strong, powerful literacy development. So that's what I would do. I'm just conceptually, we can talk about what I would do more operationally, but I'd have a very different conception in mind of what I'm trying to do and how to go about doing it. Yeah, the word balance is confusing because you would think 50% here, 50% there, but it's not. And I love how you talked about it. It's like, no, it sounds more random. You're making it harder for the kids, particularly, and I'm sure we'll get into this, particularly multilingual learners, you know, who, who, are, who get confused enough without instruction adding to it. So let's go there. Actually, talk, let's talk about multilingual learners. Does the multilingual brain require different approaches to reading instruction? No. <laughs> That's simple. Shall I elaborate? It's a little, it's not quite that simple, but I wanted to be unambiguous because what happens is the process of learning to read and what has to happen on the outside in order for learning to read to happen is basically the same for kids who understand the language that they're learning to read in, you know, English speakers in the United States and kids who are simultaneously learning the language in which they're learning to read, which in this country are called English learners, emergent bilinguals, multilingual learners. You know, we, we sort of swim in an alphabet soup of, you know, acronyms and stuff. So choose your acronym. They mean slightly different things, but I, I think about it, kids who are learning to read and write in a language, they are simultaneously learning to speak and understand. That, that's kind of the concrete literal definition. So the process of learning and teaching to read is basically the same. And the same thing has to happen. There has to be this brain circuitry constructed. Now, full disclosure, I'm going to talk about some brain and neuro stuff. I am not a neuroscientist, right? I don't know my earlobe from my prefrontal lobe. So I'm not a neuroscientist. But what I've learned from the neurolinguistic literature and a couple of neuroscientists I'm fortunate enough to know is that there is a brain circuitry 
that connects the sounds of the language to the written representation, to the meaning of the language. That circuitry has got to be constructed because it does not exist at birth. We have the brain, the, the brain elements are there and they're there and they're adequate for starting to make sense of oral language. You know, newborns, I mean, orient to human speech. That's one of the things that, that is most, the, a, a, an outside stimulus that, that, is mo that they're mo most responsive to. And you can think of the evolutionary adaptive reasons for that. So we know that incoming oral speech, spoken speech by a human being, we in intuitively know that that's meaningful and that we learn, acquire the ability to produce it and understand it without explicit instruction. Absent, you know, anomalies, developmental delay, they're exceptional cases. But under normal circumstances, normally developing children, you don't have to teach them how to understand what you're saying. You gotta teach them some words they don't know, obviously, and you can maybe help them pronounce some things they're not quite getting right. But talking and speaking using oral language is sort of intuitive, it's, it's natural, it's part of our human evolution. Not the same thing with written language. Written language is not intuitively meaningful. Squiggles on a page or squiggles on a page. They have no meaning until someone helps you connect them to the sounds they represent. And those sounds and letters combine to form words, and then they're connected with their meaning, with the semantic aspect of language. And that's a process, as you probably know, it's called orthographic mapping. So as you know, orthographic mapping means you hear the sound of the word, you see the written representation, you connect it to its meaning, and after you've seen that a few times, that word becomes a sight word. It's it might be totally decodable, but you don't want to decode it every time. You want to see it as a sight word. And by building up larger and larger bundles, foundations of sight words, that's how reading progress develops. Now, that's for kids who know the language in which they are learning to read and write. If you're simultaneously learning the language in which you're learning to read and write, you don't automatically know the words that you're being taught to read, right? Typically a five, six, seven-year-old is being taught to read words that, that are already in their oral vocabulary. You don't have to teach them those words, typically. You don't have to teach them the sound, the phonemes, because they're familiar with them. Well, learners of the language are not familiar with the words for sure, and they're not always familiar with all the sounds either. So they have a much more difficult time creating this orthographic mapping, you know, this brain circuitry. So they need support so that they know the meanings of the words that are being taught, that are being used to teach them to read, and they become familiar with the sounds. So they need that additional support. That is the, the fundamental difference between teaching English learners or kids learning the language, how to read, and kids, English speakers who already know the language, teaching to read. That's the fundamental difference. But, but in essence, you're doing the same thing. You're just providing additional support for the kids who don't yet know the language. They're English learners. That means they're learning the language. That's the big difference. We'll get to um, the operational part in the, in the next two questions, but that's, thank you for guiding us in the theory that like, no, the brains are not different. It's they're doing the same thing that orthographic mapping that they do 
that we that happens in um, when a person learns one language and learns that reading in that language that needs to happen now in first English learners who are adding English. So that's great. So exactly. can we talk about how students' primary language uh, plays a role in reading instruction? Well, there, there are a couple of ways. Um, there's a, first, let me start with, uh, well, I don't know. I, don't, I was going to make a distinction between indirectly and directly, but I, I don't, I don't want to bother with that. But let's just think there are a couple of ways. First of all, you know, um, kids come to school with with assets. You know, you've heard a lot about this. I mean, people are concerned about assets based instruction, and they're concerned that that science of reading and other things are deficit oriented, and people make a big to do about that. And I, I think that's a very false dichotomy because, I mean, I mean, the fundamental one of the fundamental principles of teaching is that you build on strengths on what kids know, and you address instructional issues, things they don't yet know skills they don't yet have. That, that's why you teach. You know, the whole idea, you know, familiar with the concept of ZPD, the zone of proximal development? You've heard, I mean, it was very big some years ago, and I think it's fallen into disuse. But the ZPD is basically the, the, the psychological dif distance between what you can do independently and what you can do with assistance. And one way to think about teaching is you teach in the zone of proximal development, you help kids do things that they couldn't do alone. You don't want to, a lot of times teachers spend a lot of time teaching kids things they already know. I don't know if you've seen this, but I, I see it all the time. In fact, I might've been guilty of doing that a few times myself because it's so satisfying. I teach them something they already know. I said, oh, I'm a, I'm a really good teacher. But you're just kind of doing things they already know. So the point of teaching is you identify what they can do, what they do, what they can do, what, what they're competent at, but then you want to push them to the next level or levels or, or next points in their developmental trajectory, however you define that. So that's what the zone of proximal development is. So all kids have assets, and one of the obligations of teachers is to find those assets and then identify where you need to take them next. Now, when it comes to things like decoding and where we're, what's called a, a well a well structured domain of knowledge. I mean, it's kind of hierarchically organized. You need to know certain things. You know, it's relatively straightforward, right? When when you know two consonants and a vowel, you can help kids learn the word to read the word cat, right? Probably couldn't read the word Q yet, so it's not recommended to jump into Q. I mean, there's no known strict order in which you have to teach letters and words. I mean, there are lots of things that'll work. In general, what happens is the most common sounds in the language, like M, P, T, you know, and of course the vowels, those things get taught first because they're of greatest utility. And then the most, the more, not really exotic, I mean, Q isn't really exotic, but it's far less useful. Right, Z is far less useful, except when you want to read zoo, which kids get very excited. I remember one of the kids I was teaching; she finally learned the word zoo, and she was like, "I was so excited because the Z and everything." So the thing is, you need to figure out what kids know and then build on that, and and that's really the 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 fundamental task of teaching. I've gotten away from your question. I I, I think I just talked myself into a corner. What and what you're saying is when students are speaking 
another language. You can use the sounds in one language to connect to the sounds in another. If they know gato in Espanol, you can show them the word cat and say, this is, eso es un gato. But in English, we say cat. Let's say let's see how you say those words. So you don't have to teach them what a cat is. That's right. No, thank you so. I'm glad. I'm glad someone was listening because <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, there are sounds of language. You know, the technical term is transfer. I'm sure you're familiar with this. There are sounds of languages that that transfer. In some cases, more than others, but there are also concepts that transfer. It, exactly what you said. If if they know what a gato is, that's not a concept they need. You need to teach them. They know that. Right. So you build on that. What they need to know is the word, you know, the the phonetic and written representation of the concept of gato, which they already have. So there are things they know both phonetically and semantically and, and more conceptually that you can that you can build on. So that that's one very clear way in which you can build on first language. The other way is if you have this is rare in kindergarten and first grade because most kindergarten and first graders don't read. But in the case of older children, you have a lot of times older children who are literate in their home language, right? We have kids, late arrivals, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And people say, well, what do you do about them? I mean, you know, the kid is 12 and he can't read English. My first question is, well, can he read? Where's he from? Wherever. Phnom Penh. Well, can he read in Khmer? I mean, where he comes from. Can the child read in that language? That is the first question. If the answer is yes, you've got a much more, much different and literally and really more, more e easier task than if the kid is completely illiterate in any language. That's that's a tougher, uh, that's a tougher hill to climb for sure. But that's the first question. If you know literacy in your first language, you're very well positioned to learn literacy in a second language. Not that it's easy. It's I mean it, it's hard still. But you got a strong base to build on. Right. Yeah, I noticed that when students come into my different international schools, I notice that the kids who are who progress fastest in English is the ones who have the most uh, literacy developed in their first language. So the Absolutely. so the the Japanese student who's like the number one student in her sixth grade comes to uh, our school in Laos, and then in two years she's like she goes to Lang and Lit because she is already has this written all these skills of the of reading instruction and writing instruction that she just quickly applies. She says, oh, we did this in our school. Oh, full stops. Oh, using coordinating conjunctions. Okay, I could do that as well in English. Yeah. No, it's interesting because one, one of the things that you want to be aware of is that this concept of transfer, sometimes it's like intuitive or automatic, and sometimes it's not. And so there's some kids... Mm -hmm who it needs to be pointed out to them. Uh, you know, another transfer um, concept, you know, um, um, <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm losing whatever language I have. Uh, they're called cognates. That's it. You're supposed to, you know, your Alzheimer's supposed to come later if you're bilingual, but I think I want to be an exception to that rule. <laughs> so there's this notion of concept, cognates, right? Like elephant and elephant, you know, is the most popular example. Some kids will intuit automatically, oh, that must be elefante. But not all kids do. So you can't take for granted that they know a cognate or if they know conjunctions or if they know anything in their first language that it'll automatically transfer. I mean, there's a good chance it will, but sometimes it needs to be pointed out to them. So 
you, you just need, need to be, as you said, intentional. You need to know, have a good idea of what kind of things transfer, and then check to see whether you and your students are are taking advantage of of that that material, those concepts, that knowledge. I guess we uh, again. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants such as Dr. Cummings, who said, "Yes, when a student knows their L1, they can add an, like an L20." <laughs> <laughs> they can, but it's work, right? I mean, one of the issues is that people assume that learning a second language is like learning a first language, and it's not. There are some significant differences between learning the two, and there are people who are fully fluent in their first language, as most people are absent any developmental delays, and they have a heck of a time learning a second language. So it's not automatic. So all the monolingual teachers out there, don't feel bad. It's very difficult to learn another language. It is. And I'm surprised at how often people think it's, you know, transparently obvious. And and it's just not. Tell that to people who have trouble learning a second language and not for lack of trying. Right. It takes a lot of cognitive work. Yep. Can you now, let's walk to the second part of our podcast. We just talked about the theory was foundational. And let's talk about the operational part. Like, what does this look like in classes? How can, can you walk us through a complete lesson sequence of um, what effective English reading instruction might look like? You mean for multilingual learners? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll do that and I'll try to be brief. I've been a little bit too verbose in my answers. But before I do that, I just want to mention two are you going to put links to resources or references? There are two articles that are literally indispensable if you want to really understand deeply what I'm talking about here. Uh, one is by Sharon Vaughn and her colleagues at the University of Texas. And I'll send you the link after we get off. And the other one is by Linnea Airy and her colleagues at uh, in New York. And both of them were interventions that were uh, developed for English learners, emergent bilinguals, you know, it's slightly different, but let's make them one category. In kindergarten, first grade, who are having difficulty uh, getting traction and learning to read. Uh, maybe they had weak phonological skills. Maybe they had weak short-term memory, having trouble learning letters and sounds. I mean, any number of things. So these are kids who are like at risk for having reading difficulties. And what Sharon and Linnea did was they they started um, with a, an intervention that was developed for English monolingual speakers who were having trouble learning to read. And it had all the usual suspects, you know, phonological awareness, letters and sounds, decoding, uh, you know, like the National Reading Panel 5, plus, you know, it had writing, which the National Reading Panel didn't talk about, but it had all the things that are kind of part and parcel of what we now call, you know, the science of reading. It was very phonologically oriented, learning the foundational skills, but it also had fluency and comprehension and vocabulary, which is part of the National Reading Panel as well that people tend to forget. They thought the National Reading Panel was just about phonics. It wasn't just about phonics. So they had this pretty successful program for monolingual English speakers. And then they, these were separate studies each, but they're really quite parallel because each took that intervention for monolingual English speakers and added language supports, added things like vocabulary instruction or things like uh, making sure the kids understood 
the meaning of directions, you know, like copy or draw, things they weren't expected to read, but were part of the directions they're being given orally. Um, they would have the kids, uh, uh, you know, read whatever they were reading in their decodable text, you know, very simple and more complicated. They would have them retell the story in their own words, right? So, and they would try to have discussions. So not only were they vocabulary lessons, I mean, they taught the meanings of the words, but they also supported the kids in using the words in their discourse, in their oral language. So you had comprehensible input and comprehensible output. They were using the language, literally use, using the language that, they were, that was being used to teach them to read, right? And, and in both cases, they found, a, a, as the theory would predict, I mean, as the neuro-linguistic findings would, because they provided that additional support in the sounds and the meanings of the words that they were being taught to read. And so they both had, you know, quite successful, you know, moderately to strong, moderate to strong effects on early literacy development by connecting sound symbol instruction that was part of the, what the monolingual kids get, and then added semantic support, which is exactly what the neuro-linguistic literature says. They need additional support in semantics and phonology because that's what they're learning to read. So those two studies, uh, and, and both of them have pretty nice, especially Sharon Bonds has a very nice appendix that describes the additional English language support that was provided. Now, now these are not teaching manuals, right? This is not a, a published, you know, series or 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 anything like that. They're research studies, but they're quite rich in describing the kind of things that students were doing. So to give you an example, and this is a very superficial treatment because it, it actually is quite richer than anything I can describe in 30 or 60 seconds. But what would happen would be, they would say when they're doing phonemic awareness activities, they would make sure that the words that were being used for those phonemic awareness activities, whether it's cat, or dog or run, there was some kind of picture, some kind of illustration. So the kids knew, you know, the meaning of the word that was being used, right? This, this is, they weren't just uttering nonsense syllables is what I'm saying. There was meaning connected to the sounds that were coming out of their mouths. Otherwise just memorizing nonsense syllables, which is just more difficult to understand and makes orthographic mapping literally impossible. Cause if you can't connect with the meaning, you can't do the mapping. So if they did phonemic awareness, they would make sure they would do it with pictures and illustrations of the words. Or if it was going to be with an action word like run, right, they would demonstrate that. So whatever you did for phonemic awareness, it was with words that were simultaneously being, they were being taught to understand the sounds and eventually would be part of what they'd be expected to, to decode. So when it came to letters and sounds, again, they would use you know, very kind of conventional picture cards. You know, those picture cards that you have that the letter A and apple. And then when they had long A, uh, what what has a long A? I don't know, brain, <laughs> something like that. But they would use pictures. So it, they would connect the sounds at something that has meaning. And then when they would teach them, they would do phonemic analysis, like elision and substitutions, right? Cat turns to bat, they would have pictures of those things. So the meaning changed and the sounds change, right? When cat turns into bat, the meaning changes. If you don't know the meaning, it's just, you say cat, you say bat, it's like saying duh and huh. Okay, it doesn't mean anything. So the connection with meaning is really important. 
Same thing when they started looking at decoding words. They would start not only pictures, but use them in sentences, uh, productive sentences, word sentences the kids had to understand. Then, of course, when they started reading text, when they started reading text, they made sure that it was words that, that they were not trying to figure out every word as they read them. These were words that are already part of the oral vocabulary instruction. And one of the things that was extremely important, and I would really recommend Linnea Airy's study, because she has probably, I think, the most significant paragraph in this whole literature, because she described the process of teaching these, scaffolding these kids reading. She said they were expected to decode unknown words by using their phonic skills to decode the word, then, then to confirm, no, the word she uses cross-check, then cross-check by looking at, thinking about meaning and even pictures to see if the word was a word they understood and made sense. So in contrast to balanced random literacy, look at the picture, think of the syntax, what's the first letter? No, there was a very specific linear protocol that she that she taught them. Use your decoding skills, use your phonics skills, your, use your letter sound knowledge skills to decode the word as the first pass of recognizing them. And then ask yourself, do I know this word? Does it make sense here? And think about it. I hate to repeat myself. That process is literally impossible if you don't know the meanings of the words. But it's also impossible if you don't know the letter sound associations as your first pass at recognizing words. So I think of decoding as like the on-ramp to word recognition. Decoding is not word recognition unless you already know the word, right? For English speakers, once I decode a word, usually I know it. But have you ever taught a kid who's like decoding something, like girl, you go, girl, 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 girl? right? They've decoded it, but it's not until they recognize it as a word that they've recognized it. We have to make that process possible for English learners, for multilingual learners, kids who are learning the language as they're learning to read and write it. And so that's, that's the big picture with a couple of little details here and there of how those lessons would proceed in order to provide that kind of support, but teach the foundational skills that are so essential to develop literacy. I'm excited to get those articles from you. I'm excited to dive into them and then to learn about them and share them on, on this podcast. I like how you talked about uh, decoding as the on-ramp to word recognition and you gave a really wonderful example. I could see the first grade teacher in you, Dr. Goldenberg. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. It, it's let me tell you, elementary school teachers are exceptional teachers. As a secondary yeah. teacher, I know, like, wow, they do amazing, magical work. Let's talk about oral language. You've actually talked about this several times. What's the role of oral language in teaching reading instruction to multilingual learners? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we talk a lot about foundational skills. And when I talk about foundational skills, I, fa I mean foundational literacy skills. And what I mean by that are the skills that allow individuals to connect the sounds of the language to their written representation. Those are foundational literacy skills. But you can also talk about 
another kind of foundational skills, foundational oral language skills, which actually precede foundational literacy skills, because literacy is literally based on oral language, but it's written language. You know, oral language, as I said a few minutes ago, is sort of intuitively, we know intuitively that's meaningful, right? And it's part of the human DNA. Or we've had oral language speech in as part of the human species for approximately 300,000 years ago. Now, I'm not an archaeologist, so blame them if I got this wrong. But according to the best evidence that we have from evolutionary archaeologists and people who study these things, it's been part of the human species for 300,000 years. Written language is much more recent. It appeared in Mesopotamia about 5,000 years ago, like 295,000 years later. And written language is literally a human invention. It's a human invention. We, we, I wasn't there, but people invented, you know, hieroglyphics and cuneiform, right? Those are first sort of logographic languages. They're not letters and sounds and alphabetic. They represented concepts. And then alphabetic languages came much later. 1,500 years later. Those are human inventions. But they're based on oral language because people had to figure out a way. I'm not exactly sure what motivated them, but we wouldn't have reading and writing if, if they didn't. People had to have a way to capture what they were saying in a more permanent way. You know, oral language is evanescent. You know, you say it and it's gone unless you are fortunate and you happen to record it and then you play it and so forth. But until recording devices came along, the only recording device was, you know, the wall of a cave or something. You drew pictures and, and then they had tablets where they had to count how many bushels of wheat they had. That's what the Egyptians had to do. And that's why they invented hieroglyphics and so forth. But oral language came first, right? Expressing ideas, exchanging information that came first. And then came writing, which was invented to capture oral language. So oral language is foundational to reading in the sense that if you don't have oral language, you wouldn't have written language. So it's foundational from that standpoint, but foundational literacy skills are those skills that connect that oral language to the written representation. So I try to keep straight, oral language is foundational to literacy, but foundational literacy skills as the key to connecting oral language to written language. So you talked about the foundational literacy skill. So what would that might look like when we are providing accommodations for MLs using um, oral language? Well, I, I think it goes back to what we were saying before. You know, if you're learning to read in a, in a language, you're simultaneously learning to speak and understand. You have to be assisted, helped, taught the sounds and the meanings of that language that then you're teaching them to decode it's written representation. Now, if they know how to do that process in their own language, as we've talked about, if they know how to do that in their own language, that, that's a huge step up. I mean, that's a huge, important foundation to build on. But if they don't have that second language, you got to help them acquire it as they're learning, you know, the, the literacy skill. Dr. Goldenberg, this has been an amazing podcast. Is there anything else you want to add before I end the podcast? Well, yeah, just, just one thing, actually, you know, one of my concerns, I'll try not to rant too much here, but one of my concerns is, especially in the domain of emergent bilinguals, multilingualers, and so forth, there's been a lot of disinformation and misinformation and just outright wrong information. 
you know, for example, that all the research in the science of reading is based on English monolinguals. That's untrue. I mean, I gave you two studies that basically disprove that. And there are a lot of others that, you know, we don't have time to get into. Neurolinguistic studies on L1 and L2 learners. So the idea that, that it's all about English monolingual English speakers is just, is just untrue. The other thing that you sort of brought up um, a little incidentally was the bilingual, the issue of bilingual brain. And as I tried to explain, I mean, in some ways, it in some ways it's true there's a bilingual brain. You know, you and I are bilingual. Each of us presumably has a brain. Therefore, you know, there's a bilingual brain. But the question is, what is the relevance of a bilingual brain to learning to read and write, to becoming literate? And the answer is the one I think I gave you. Well, it's really not that relevant because structurally, there's no difference. Structurally and functionally, the same things have to happen. That circuitry has got to be built. The difference is you got to provide that support. So the bilingual brain is not really an issue. It's learning to read and write in a language you're simultaneously learning to speak and understand is what the issue is. And a lot of the talk about bilingual brain, I think, is just a distraction because a lot of people say, well, there's a bilingual brain. And if you do all these studies and the kids are not bilingual, then it's irrelevant. I mean, that is just wrong on several accounts. So my only point is I'm dismayed by the amount of misinformation spread, particularly by people who are presumably English learner advocates. They're doing a tremendous disservice because they are depriving from teachers, not to mention students, important knowledge, whether you call it scientific, I don't care what you call it, I don't, you can call it science of reading, you can call it reading research, it doesn't matter to me. It's important knowledge that teachers and children are are not having getting the benefit of because people are saying things that are really not helpful and not really accurate. So my con I'm concerned about that and I hope people listening to this podcast will have a I don't know, an appreciation for that, maybe. Well, even though you are retired, I am, we are so grateful that you are helping us see the disinformation from the real research. And it's it's funny how um, you said you couldn't find, you might not have a front lobe, frontal lobe, ear lobe. I'm like, yes, you do. You have a frontal lobe, a big brain, and you also have a really beautiful sense of humor. So this, this, podcast felt like a, um, a keynote, but more it felt like a really intimate conversation with an expert in the field. So Dr. Godenberg, thank you for lighting our path. Well, you are more than welcome, Tan. It was a pleasure to meet you. And thank you again for the honor of being on your podcast. Muchas gracias. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Some of the takeaways from this podcast with Dr. Rosenberg is that Reading instruction should not be random instruction. Random means students guessing at words to produce sounds. Instead, MLs need intentional, explicit instructions on letter sounds. But phonics is not enough. There has to be meaning. 
They can't decode the word train without an image of a train to bind the sound to that image. That's why comprehension, oral language development, and vocabulary are such huge parts of reading instruction for MLs. Though I'm still looking for specifically what reading instruction looks like in the class, at least this enlightening conversation points to the necessary components. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.